Happy Sabbath. We uh, want to go ahead and get started, and we're so glad that you all made it, and we want to uh, begin with some singing. Amen? Amen. And, and uh, just to get us in, the, in the, the right mind frame, the right mindset. And so we're going to sing hymn 524, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. And uh, I just want to say a big thank you to an awesome pianist who has uh, some troubles with with her wrist, but this is the first time that she's gotten up there, and she had some beautiful, beautiful playing before, and if you guys were listening to her, uh, she was doing our intro music, and uh, awesome, awesome. So we're going to sing 524, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know the saith the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I proved him more and more, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust his cleansing blood just in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing cleansing flood jesus jesus how i trust him how i Trust in Jesus, just from sin and self to cease. Just from Jesus, simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him. How I proved him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Last verse I'm so glad I've learned to trust thee. I'm so glad I learned to trust thee. Precious Jesus, Savior, friend, and I know that Thou art with me.
How many of you were blessed by, how many of you were here yesterday for Friday night? Yeah, good majority. Um, and how many of you were blessed? Amen. Powerful, powerful testimony. Thank you, Mike, so, so much for uh, coming. And we um, are going to have a presentation by Mike, uh, Staying Clean in a Dirty World. And then afterwards, we'll have a question and answer session. And so we encourage you to write down your questions. Um, I believe some paper was passed out uh, Yeah, so paper was passed out. If you want um, some extra paper to ask uh, questions on, let me know, and uh, I can get some to you. There's pens in the pews in front of you. If you want to start thinking of questions, and really appreciate Mike uh, being uh, willing to be open and and share from his heart. And again, thank you for coming, um, and we are looking forward to uh, seeing how God is going to work through you. So Mike, give the time to you. And actually, you know what? Come up here. We're going to have prayer. Let's uh, let's have a prayer. can't forget prayer. can't forget prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to dialogue together. Thank you for using your servant, Mike. And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be present here. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. 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 Thank you. All right. I have to check and make sure. Do I have any beet salad in my teeth? That was really good. Wasn't that good? All right, so Jeff, you gave me this thing. I'm not sure. Do I just hit this button on the top? Bing, bing. That'll do it. Okay, very cool. Thank you again for uh, the warm reception and for many of your uh, warm greetings. And um, I think for all of us, you know, there's nothing like a personal hug, a a personal hello, and it's been extremely uh, healing for me no matter where I go when I find that, that people are open and that maybe in some way, that we can start uh, being more vulnerable and transparent to each other in a safe place, not in a way to glamorize or glorify what we're going through, but in a way that, that we're connected and we want to let each other know that, that we're all human and we live in this world and, and we know that when we walk outside there that we get stuff on our feet, isn't that right? And that we can come here and find a safe place. Um, I've been to several churches now and, and, and it's interesting because pretty quickly now, I start to get um, kind of a personality of a church, and every church has an individual personality. And just let me say from the heart that this church has a very warm and friendly uh, character, personality. I go to some churches, and they're so stiff, and, you know, it's very difficult to make a difference, but, you know, still the Holy Spirit is able to work. But how much more easy is it, it, are, are we able to address things or whatever, if we have a very open and friendly attitude. And so I just want to let you know that you have that. And, and I think that that's exciting because that means that, that there's an openness that the Holy Spirit is able to use us in, in a very redemptive way. All right, let's see if it works. It didn't work. This, this button or this button? Oh, thank you. Hey, look at there. <laughs> let's go through some statistics. Among Christians... This is among Christians. It is not considered sex to engage in oral sex before marriage. 
According to the Guttmacher Institute, the United States has the highest rate of teen pregnancy among developed nations. Nearly 75% of all teenagers, wow, have had sex before 20. More kids are likely to have sex before 15 years and with uh, more than one partner within the same year. Basically meaning that once you've compromised, it's easier to compromise after that. Nearly half of the United States high school students have had sexual intercourse. The average age of first intercourse for boys and girls is 15. I don't have anything confirmed, but I did hear statistics saying that the average age for consensual sex is now 12, meaning that kids are younger are having it. As a matter of fact, I come from Greenville, Tennessee, and, and I'm a hairdresser, and some of my clients actually work in the OB department, and they've actually shared with me that there's young girls as young as 9 and 10 years old that are pregnant, giving, babies, uh, having, giving birth to babies. Although teens tend to have sexual relationships with only one partner at a time, their number of partners add up over time. Almost 25% report having sex with four or more partners by the 12th grade. 1991 National Survey of Adolescent Males found condom use to be the highest at the beginning of a relationship and declining once the partner is perceived as safe. According to the CDC, on average, 40 to 80,000 new cases of HIV are reported each year. It's estimated that half of all new infections are among people younger than 25 years old. Compared to the generation, general population, adolescents have the fastest increasing rate of HIV infection. On average, two young people are infected with HIV every hour of every day. That's 48 people every day times 365 days a year. Is that amazing? What happens is with young people, especially because young people haven't really experienced a lot of death, so they have this kind of the, this false sense of mortality. They don't think that they, that, that they can die or that they can get sick or whatever. And so what happens with young people is they take greater risk because they don't fear death. There's kind of like this fear as you get older, you know, your friends start passing away, you say, maybe I should slow down a little, right? But with young people, they don't understand, and so they tend to take more risk. Among reported AIDS cases in adolescents, 13 to 19-year-olds, 50% occur in African-Americans, 28% in Caucasians, and 20% in Hispanics. Premarital sex causes a diminished trust in the intimate partners, decreases the desire to be sexually exclusive with a partner. It also increases the risk of developing a negative body image. Basically, what that means is, is, is if I'm a guy and I have multiple girlfriends that have compromised, what happens is these women start to think that, hey, you know, how do I compare to his last lover? How do I compare to the other lovers that they've had? And this is one of the things that I like to tell young people. You know, if, if I do it according to God's way, I might be the worst kisser in the world. But you know what? If you do it God's way, and, and, I, and I meet this woman of my, my dreams, right? And, and she comes to me, but she doesn't know that I'm the worst kisser in the world. If she's done it according to God's will, she doesn't know that I'm the worst kisser in the world. But here's the good thing, because she's never compared to anybody else, right? So then when we get together, she doesn't know anything different. So even though I'm the worst kisser in the world, to her, I am the best kisser in the world. Isn't that right? And so that's the beautiful thing about God. He, his intention wasn't for us to sample what's around, because when I was in the gay lifestyle, that was what it was all about, and, you know, comparing notes. Well, how did this one stack up to that one? You know, what were their attributes? What were their downfalls? What was this? And so what it really did is it, is it gave you this this really poor body image because I was constantly 
comparing myself to other people, when really that wasn't how God intended it to be anyway, right? What it does is it also uh, causes people to view love in a cynical manner. It also causes the acceptance of promiscuity as a normal state of interaction. So this cynical manner, what it basically means that if I was uh, sexually involved with one woman, right, and then that doesn't work out, and especially if you're young, if you're between the ages of 15 and 20, you know, the emotions haven't even matured. And so if I'm connecting sexually with somebody, there's a lot of stuff going on there that, that's very immature. And so the chances of that working out are very slim. And so what happens is, you know, I may give myself sexually over to my first girlfriend, but then the next girlfriend, how easy is it going to be to compromise that? I've already done it once, you know, I don't have to guard it so easily. And then we break up and then I hook up with somebody else. So each time you compromise sexually, it makes it that much easier to compromise again. And so you end up having this cynical view about love because you know what? By the time you're 20 years old, if you've had as many as three to five lovers, you start to get the picture that love really doesn't work. Isn't that true? In the United States, one in four adolescent females ages 14 to 19 is infected with at least one sexually transmitted disease. 15% have more than one sexually transmitted disease. How about that? For young people? The pornography industry is larger than the revenues of the top technology companies combined. That means you add Microsoft, Google, Amazon, eBay, Yahoo, Apple, Netflix, and Earthlink, you put them all together and the pornography industry still makes more money. How about that? Every second, $3,000 is spent on pornography. That's $11 million every hour. Every second, 28,000 people are viewing pornography. That's 102 million people every hour. Average age of first internet exposure to pornography, 11 years old. 15 to 17-year-olds having multiple hardcore exposures, 80%. That's a lot. 8 to 16-year-olds having viewed porn online, 90%, and mostly while doing the homework. Any parent living in this day and age that allows their children to have access to the internet unsupervised, you are setting your children up to fail. Any child is, is helpless against the power of, what is it? Sugar and caffeine, isn't that right? And so the same thing, the same addictive process with caffeine and sugar is the same process with pornography. The moment that your child is slimed, what happens is it creates this drive that they just can't help. As a matter of fact, I, I was speaking with a mother just this week who was talking about her son, how he is constantly trying to get a hold of pornography. He's always trying to manipulate and trick her. And so she shut off the, the uh, internet at her home so he can't access it at the home. So what he tries to do is he tries to get other people, hey, can you take me to McDonald's? He goes, sure, I'll take you to McDonald's. And what he does is he puts his, ba- his iPad in his backpack, he goes to McDonald's, and he hangs out in the bathroom for a few minutes so he can access the free uh, Wi-Fi, so he can access the porn. So now the mother has to, has to constantly watch her son, and, and anytime he's heading out of the house, she has to search him, she has to search his backpack and his bag to see if he's actually carrying his, his laptop with him or his iPad with him. And, and so, again... Truly, you know, speaking from somebody who came from that addiction, I can tell you that that was my driving force each and every day, every waking moment. And so any parent that has internet in their home without a password, who's not even watching their children while they're doing homework, who allows their children in their room during that time, I believe that you're allowing this thing to take control of your children's life. I'm telling you, an immature mind has absolutely no control over this, uh, this issue. 
7 to 17-year-olds who would freely give out their home address, 29%. 7 to 17-year-olds who would freely give out their email address, 14%. Children's character names linked to thousands of porn links, 26. That's a very old estimate. What that means is basically the, the pornography industry knows that the sooner I can get you as a client, the sooner that I can slime you with pornography, the sooner I can start getting your money. And so what happens is, I was talking about it last night, that when a young mind has been exposed to pornography, it actually starts a warping. It warps the mind. It starts to change the mind in such a way that it's kind of like a train wreck. I remember the first time that I saw porn, I was about 10 years old. What happened is my mother, eventually after my parents divorced, my mother moved in with a guy that had another uh, couple that was actually uh, renting a bedroom from them. And I actually found their pornography, only theirs was hardcore pornography. And as disgusting and vile as it was to me, I couldn't stop finding opportunities to go in their room and finding it and looking at it. And so it does. It has its effect. I'm an example of that. And the grip that it has, it actually took me at a very young age. And even though, fortunately for my uh, time period that I was growing up, there wasn't online pornography. Pornography wasn't as accessible. And so the sad reality is, is now we have young people that are looking at so many hardcore images in just one sexual session that what's happening is these young people can't even have a sexual release unless they're looking at multiple hardcore images. What happens is it starts to warp a young brain much more differently than it warps a brain that's already developed. So at 35 years old, when I got uh, internet access into my home, I was up until 2 o'clock in the morning accessing porn. But what happened is my mind was already developed. And so what happens is there's many men, adult men, that are actually experiencing sexual dysfunction because that's what they're looking at on screen and they can't even perform with their wives. But if they stop, if they actually are able to turn off the pornography for a period of time, sometimes six months or longer, then sexual function can actually be restored and come back. But not for a young person. Anyone who's, who's young, when their brain is developing, what happens is when you're exposed to pornography, if you're looking at multiple hardcore images in just one session, what happens is it creates a deficit in the brain. They've actually determined that it actually turns parts of the brain into jelly. And so what happens is, is imagine how much harder that is for a young child to rehabilitate. And, and so for a young person, what happens is he may think, yeah, and I've heard many young, young men say this, that I was hoping that that my porn addiction would be uh, settled with by the time I got married. But the sad reality is, is they actually were able, they, they had no choice, but they brought this into the marriage relationship. And so many men, they struggle with, with how is it, why is it that, that I'm not satisfied with my wife? She's beautiful, she's young, I love her. And yet what's happened is that's the grip that pornography does at such a young age. So if you want to have a child that is free from all of this, I believe that you need to put parameters on your computer. I believe that you need to take control and either take out the Wi-Fi out of your house completely or, or put up a password that only your kids can use when you're working it. As a matter of fact, um, I, when I speak at academies, what's incredible is, is some of these academies I go to and they have the, um, the internet on a password that they can only use it you know, if the teacher gives it to them and then they shut it down before they're done. Or the sad reality is I've been to some schools where they had unlimited access to pornography. And so the, the principal didn't make any, uh, any limitations and the kids had perfect, you know, total access to anything that they wanted 24 hours a day. Bass Academy, I would like to point out, as, is in my opinion, the epitome of, uh, of protection for the kids. The principal is so techie savvy that he's put so many blocks on the passwords. Every kid has an iPad. 
and they're allowed to use it, but they don't have access to the internet except in limited situations. And they all have to turn in their, their telephones and every device that they have you know, at the end of the day, and he is able to go through every phone device and to shut off their ability to access the internet. Yeah, it's an incredible uh, school, in my opinion, and, and they've taken charge of what the kids are viewing. And, and, and it's amazing to see the difference in those kids and then the kids that I counsel with in other academies. And so I didn't finish my thought. Anyway, what happens is the pornography industry knows that the sooner I can get you as a client, that the sooner that we can get you spending your money. So what they do is, is when your little six-year-old gets on the computer and looks up Barney the Purple Dinosaur, what happens is the pornography industry has already uh, provided hardcore pornography to pop up when your kid looks up certain child character names. I want to share with you this testimony of Tim and talking about the power of pornography in somebody's life and also what began for Tim and also how he, he found um, transparency and healing in his own family. Can we turn it up, please? Okay. I need audio. Is it possible? Great. Hang on one second, please. Okay. Let's see what's after this. Okay. Let's go on for a little bit. Thank you. All right, pornography and masturbation, what it does is it breaks down the desire for intimacy. Listen, we were created by God, by a God who is communal. Isn't that right? You know, we have Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. Isn't that right? They are in relationship. They know what intimacy is, and when God created us, he created us to be intimate human beings. And so what pornography and masturbation does is it breaks down the desire to interact with each other. It's a self-love. It's a selfish love. And we know that, that God had created it to be something that was shared with somebody. When we do it according to God's way, what happens is, is there's this powerful connection you know, between a husband and a wife. And what happens is, is he holds her. He's able to touch her, and she's able to touch him. They're looking eye to eye as they embrace each other, and this beautiful connection is made. There's a, a chemical that's released in the back of the brain every time that you have a sexual release, and it's like morphine. And that morphine experience is so powerful, it says, wow, that was awesome. Let's do it again. And so if we do it according to God's way, then what happens when a husband marries his wife and, and they enjoy sex? It was given as a gift by God. It's not something dirty and disgusting. It was something to be enjoyed and to be experienced, right? And so as a husband is embracing his wife sexually, what happens is when this morphine thing hits off or whatever, what it does is it combines them together even closer. And the idea is, is that, you know, when you start having kids and the kids are vomiting all night long and your wife is tired and exhausted or whatever, that morphine is designed to keep them together. Isn't that right? Through the financial troubles, through the years of their life. And so if we do it according to God's way, it was designed to be a blessing. But it still works even if we do it the other way. If we're beholding images on computer screens, it still has its effect. It still combines you to it. That morphine still does its purpose. It's released in the back of the mind, and it says, wow, let's do that again. And that's what creates the addictive drive. Because ultimately, self-love never satisfies. How are we doing? Awesome. You guys are cool. Listen, I've been at churches where I had to hold the microphone there the whole time. And I wasn't going to say that until I had to. 
Can we have nothing? It torments your soul. It I'm gonna start it over one more time. Turn mine down all the way. Oops, what I do? Okay, like that. Okay. Just nothing again. Torments your soul. And I went home and didn't like myself. The effect of holding a secret. Thank you. No, it's all right. Nobody wants to live with a secret. It torments your soul. It bothers your conscience. I created this guy that everybody loved. And I went home and didn't like myself. The effect of holding a secret that long is that you never had the freedom to be you. I don't carry secrets anymore. One day, we were playing in a neighborhood. I grew up in a nice little neighborhood in a just playing with some friends. There was a neighbor that lived across the street from me. And uh, he told me to come over to his house. So I came over to his house and didn't go inside the house. He said, you know, come in the garage. I've got to show you something. And so I go into the garage, and um, he just starts touching me. Just inappropriate um, touching and I was eight I didn't know what was going on I didn't know what he was doing um, but I knew it wasn't right and I came home and I walked in the door and my mom asked me how was my day That was the day I became a professional liar. And uh, I got real good at it. Um, a couple of days later, I got called to the garage again. And again. And again. process this. I don't know where to begin with this. I don't know how to deal with this. All I did know is that if my dad found out, he would kill him. So I had to keep it a secret. I was literally becoming two different people. There'd be the guy that could go to school and kind of get through a day. And then there would be the guy that cannot stop looking at pornography. This is not casual. This is, I can't stop. I'm driven to this thing. So I had to keep it a secret. I don't want to deal with these questions. I don't have answers for this. I'm 12.
this thing is still on me. She caught me. I didn't know what to say. I was embarrassed. I felt like a pervert. I felt completely disgusted with myself. Because she's a praying woman, she went back to her room and started praying for me. It's probably the best prayer I think my mother has ever prayed. I didn't hear it. But that prayer came and got me. I got up, cleaned myself off, walked down the hallway. If I made a left, I'm gonna go to my room. I'm never gonna talk about this again. If I make a right, maybe I'd have enough strength to go in her room and tell her what the real situation was. Cause it wasn't porn. That was, that wasn't the root of the situation. She went and got my younger brother. He came in the room. He said he got molested by the same guy. Then all three of us cried. My dad comes home. We share what happened. And then my mom says that she got sexually abused when she was six. And then my dad says that he got molested when he was five. So in one night, My exposure caused everyone to kind of come clean and confess. Uh, their pain. I mean, that night, man, oh, I just can't articulate to you the freedom I felt to be able to tell the truth to somebody and not be judged. It's the most, oh my God, you. And to have the truth come out and be surrounded by nothing but love. My parents, their relationship with Christ uh, is amazing. They have always been authentic and real in how they live out their faith. Man, I just thank God that they weren't like the type of deep religious people that can't handle pain. I, I was just happy that they were, that they loved me, that they didn't judge me. We didn't grow up in an atmosphere where we saw any hypocrisy. My parents weren't one way at home and then another way at church. They were the same people. And um, they told us the right way. They showed us the right way. And then they just prayed for us. And, um, you know, when the Lord got ready for us, when he called, we knew his voice because they taught us well. I 
I would love to tell you that as soon as I accepted Christ into my life, I put porn down and never picked it up again. Uh, but the fact that the Lord would be patient enough with me, knowing that it didn't take me five minutes to get into it, and it probably wasn't going to take five minutes to get out. But if I just started walking with him, he would just start shedding layers of bondage and abuse, molestation, low self-esteem, people-pleasing, this stuff. As we began to walk, stuff would just start falling off of me. Um, and that he would give me relationships. When God really wants to love you, he loves you through people. He brought people into my life to literally love all that crap out of me. And it's been a great walk. 14 years still walking. It's been good. So. I don't carry secrets anymore. My name is Tim Ross and I And so do you see the difference? He said, when Jesus wants to love you, he loves you through people. Isn't that right? And so here's, here's my understanding is what we've done in church culture is we pack our garbage in our trunks and we make sure that we look really good when we come into church and nobody knows what we struggle with. But the Bible confirmed to me just my guilt and condemnation because it said that every secret thing will be revealed. Isn't that right? That it should come fully out. And so what's happening is here we are, we're coming into church and we, we make sure that we look really good and we might be prominent citizens and we might be a good deacon and, and put the chairs just in the right place that they belong. But God wants to really reach us and help us with the things that are bringing us down. Isn't that right? It's not just about how we look in church. He wants us to be healed from the inside because man looks on the outside, but God looks on the inside. And so if we're coming into church culture, and according to the statistics, many of you are struggling in here. Many of you. 62% of Christian pastors struggle with pornography addiction. I spoke at a pastor's retreat uh, in February, and what was so sad is I was standing there, and after I'd given my testimony, everywhere I went, there were men standing in the corners waiting for an opportunity when I would be by myself that they could tell me secretly that they were struggling with this issue. And here we're talking about pastors you know, that are at the very top, and their stress levels are very high, so, and, and they have nobody to talk to. They're kind of like in this, in this crucible where they're constantly being watched by the church members. So not only do they have this extreme pressure, but where can they go for legitimate help? Where can they go and, and find that freedom, right? And so here were these men that were actually asking me for different ways to, to overcome this addiction or whatever, but if they struggle, isn't it fair to say that we probably struggle too? And look at the healing that Tim got. You know, fortunately for him, he was exposed by his mother. And his mother was a praying woman. Didn't you like what he said? I like that my parents weren't the type of Christians that can't handle pain. And I think that a lot of times what happens is if we start to talk about the things that are really taking us out in church culture, there will be pain. And it probably would be messy. But God would rather have a messy child than no child at all. Isn't that right? 
So not only does pornography and masturbation bring, breaks down the desire for intimacy, it creates avenues for satanic control. What was happening is while I was indulging in fantasy and, and that behavior, what was happening is I was not getting victory from my same-sex attraction. As a matter of fact, I told you last night that once God gave me the victory over the physical, then I struggled with demonic dreams. Isn't that right? So what I had to realize is that, that sin started originated in my mind. And so what I had to learn to do was this process of admitting and submitting what I was going through. And as I was able to do that, then the demonic dreams, they were able to go away. It also sets up cemented pathways for repeat and obsessive indulgence. So what happens is our brains were made in an incredible way. God knew what he was doing. And so what happens is, is the things that we repeat, the patterns that we repeat, you, you know, in your brain, it's got like the, all these little dots, right? And, and you know how like your phones have like that, that sequence that you do with the dots, you know, to make sure that it'll unlock or open up? Your brain is kind of similar. You have these dots. And so, so what happened is as a child, as I started to indulge in fantasy, and, and, and masturbation, what was happening is, is there was this pathway that was created in my brain. And any time that I would indulge that, that, that pathway became stronger and stronger. What happened is as I indulged that over years, sometimes 10 times in a day, this pathway became like a ten or five-lane highway for me. Isn't that fair? It may have started off as a bike path, but eventually for me, it became a five-lane highway. So anytime I was stressed, anytime I was running late for school, anytime that I was upset or happy, bam, I was going on this pathway that would lead to fantasy and masturbation. So then I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. And Tim said it, I think, very well. It took more than five minutes to get into this mess. It was probably going to take longer than five minutes to get out. Isn't that right? And so as I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, I didn't come up out of that water, and I wasn't healed. I wasn't straight, ready to date, mate. I still had this, this, this thing over me, this sexual addiction and a boyfriend. And so as I accepted Jesus Christ, what happened is I started to make a new pathway over here to Jesus Christ. And so now this pathway to Jesus Christ is like a bike path. It's not very blazing, right? And so the mind was made. God knew what he was doing. And so, and so what happened is I had this five-lane highway over here to pornography, but I had a bike path to Jesus Christ. Which one do you think is still going to have a stronger influence in my life? It's fair to say, isn't it? So if we understand the process and doesn't make it understandable that, that God is willing to walk with us and he's going to walk us through that. And so what happened is as he encouraged me to claim the blood of Jesus in my temptation, then what happened is I started to take this pathway more and more. And eventually what happened is, is the five-lane highway started to break apart and roots started to grow through my five-lane highway and my path to Jesus Christ started to broaden and open up and become stronger. That's the way your brain was designed to be. And so so one of the sad things is, is we, we come into church culture and we go, oh, you know, you shouldn't struggle now. You've accepted Jesus as your Savior. What's your problem? But we don't understand that there's a process. Isn't that right? Justification, right, it justifies us right then. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and he forgives us our sin. But the process of sanctification takes time. Isn't that right? And that process, God's not going to take away your right to choose but he wants you to cooperate with him. Remember I said last night, God didn't say stop being gay because he knew personally I could not stop being gay. He just said, stop resisting me. So as I cooperate with Jesus Christ, as I give him permission to work in my life, I start getting more victory than I have falls. And eventually the tsunami that would overtake me with my sexual temptation turned out to be something that I could deal with very easily because I had learned the process of exercising my will, and exercising the uh, power of Jesus Christ to intervene in my behalf. That was a long description for that one, wasn't it? 
It destroys the ability to connect to Christ and other love because, again, what was happening is many men, many young men, uh, uh, what's amazing is, especially college students, this is a, has a huge grip because college students have incredible stress. And so what happens is, is it's not uncommon to find uh, young men between 20 and 30 years old or 20 and 40 years old that actually will hide out and do nothing but view pornography on a daily basis to the point where it interferes with their ability to even connect socially. And, and that happened to me many circumstances and situations. Even though I was still in the gay lifestyle, I found that I would be so addicted to this process that I wasn't even going out looking for dates anymore because I was allowing this thing to take control of my life. And, and the satisfaction that it gave me for about 10 minutes was enough to keep me running back to that addiction. And so what it does is it interferes with your ability to connect with other people. It sets up the destruction of people as valuable, creating harems in the mind. And, and what happens is whenever you're looking or viewing at pornography, you're looking at somebody's daughter or you're looking at somebody's son. You know, but what happens is we are looking at pornography to use them, you know, not to engage with them. Because you know what? To interact with your wife or, or your husband, what that's going to take is you, you're probably going to have to take out the garbage. You're going to have to wait till they're in the mood. You're going you're to have to prime it a little bit. It's going to take an investment on your part. And here's the appeal of porn. What happens is it's always ready. You're always number one. It's always in the mood, whether you want a redhead, a blonde, or a brunette, it's always available for you, and that's the pull. But it never satisfies because you were never intended to connect with something on a screen, right, or, or even illicit situations. Warren Beatty, a very uh, popular actor, many of you probably know him. He probably is your neighbor because we're in Southern California, right? <laughs> but anyway, what he did is he did an interview for a magazine, and in the magazine he said, that the best sex he'd ever had, and remember, he, he, he was in that movie Shampoo where he was actually very, you know, uh, sexually active even in the movie, let alone in his personal life. He said he was very uh, prolific with the women, the starlets or whatever of Hollywood. But he said in this comment, and he doesn't even profess to be a Christian, he said that the most fulfilling sex that he ever had was monogamous sex that he had with his wife. And, and so he even understands the process of what God had intended us to be and so the idea was not to objectify women or to create these harems in the mind. The idea was we were intended to have an intimate giving and receiving relationship with somebody else that we could physically touch and hold. It creates a tunnel of slavery and self-loathing, which is the addictive process. And what happened is I was constantly in this, in this, this, this wheel, this rat wheel, this gerbil wheel, this hamster wheel of, of Temptation, fall, repentance. Temptation, fall, repentance. What was happening is I was constantly on this wheel and I could never get off. And so if I, if I confess my sins, does Jesus forgive me? The answer is yes, right? All right, so, so give me some feedback. And so that means that, that, that the next time that I get tempted, if I fall again, does Jesus forgive me? Yes, but he wants more. He wants to take me off of that wheel, doesn't he? And so what was happening is I had to stop myself before I fell and I had to recognize where are the tools to help get me off of that wheel so that I can get real victory in my life. Because if I'm just sinning, being tempted and sinning, there's no joy in that. There's no peace in that. I was constantly being, you know, hounded by the enemy and giving into sexual temptation. And so what it did is it created this, this loathing. As a matter of fact, I would hook up sometimes with three or four people in a day. And what would happen is, is eventually I made myself sick. And I wasn't even professing Jesus at that time. And so this morning I was talking to the young people about graffiti on the wall. Do you mind hearing it again? Is that all right? All right, cool. Thanks. 
They're very kind. And so what happens is Jesus gives us this heart, right? So imagine Jesus gives each one of us when we're born this beautiful crystal heart. It has no fingerprints on it. It has no chips in it, no dings, no scratches, nothing. It's perfect. It's pure. And it's so perfect, you can see right through it, right? It, it's like Baccarat crystal, and it, it's about this big, I'd spec. And, and so what happens is, if I do it the right way, what happens is, when I find the woman of my dreams, what I do is, I give her this heart, right? It's my purity. And, and so if we do it the right way, then what happens is, she takes out her etching pen, and she, she signs my heart with her name, right? And, and if she's done it the right way, then she hands me that heart also, and, and I etch my name on her heart. And the idea is that... that that what we've brought to each other is this purity, this gift to give to each other. But what happened is, is I chose to do it my way, and I started sampling what was out there. I had, this, I had this, um, this emptiness inside of me that demanded to be filled. And so every lover that I took on, they were signing this beautiful crystal heart that I had. And so then eventually, when you find the one that you want to be with for the rest of your life, you hand them this crystal that's got everybody else's name on it, and you just say, well, I hope you can find a place to scratch your name in there, right? And so this is not what God intended for it to be. What happens is, is, is every time that you connect sexually with somebody, you give yourself a little bit more away. And what was happening is over 20 years, I was learning that what was happening is I was becoming emptier and emptier and emptier. And in the process, what it did is it kept driving me more and more and more into the sexual acting out. So if we struggle... There's a need for repentance and surrender, a true understanding of the nature of God. And I, and I, I really struggled with this. And we have a video clip that will help to explain it maybe a little bit more. But let's say I have a relationship with my Savior, Jesus Christ, right? And so he's my Savior, and he says to stay with him. Isn't that right? I've given him my heart. He's cleansed me. He forgave me, right? But then all of a sudden, as I'm walking, all of a sudden, this is my Savior, and my only safety is with him. But all of a sudden... I may find myself over here, right? And all of a sudden, you know, I, I realize that my Savior is over there and I'm over here and I come to my senses and I say, hey, I know that my only safety is over there. Repentance to me is really nothing more than acknowledging that I've separated from my Savior. He didn't move, I moved. And sometimes it's conscious. Sometimes I make a choice and I go, Lord, I'm just gonna sin because I want this more than I want you. Whatever the situation is, sometimes I think that we, we all of a sudden realize, wow, I don't know how I got here, but I know that I'm very far away. Repentance, in my understanding, is merely acknowledging that I'm separated from my Savior. Repentance is coming back to my Savior, asking him to restore me, knowing that he's gonna cleanse me and restore me, and that's what repentance is. It's not groveling on the ground, asking for something, begging that he take me back. Repentance is merely just understanding I'm not where I want to be, and I know that my only safety is back with my Savior. Repentance is merely coming back to be reconciled and restored. Isn't that cool? Does that help to change maybe a little bit, you know, where we're at? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and it cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And it's invitational again, just like my other favorite verse, Philippians 2, verse 5. It says, if. Jesus just says, if. If you'll just confess your sins, he says, I'll take care of the rest. All he says, all the, the only part that we have to this whole verse is the very first part. If you'll just confess your sins, Mike, then what I'll do, I'm the one that's faithful. You're not faithful, he is. And so... 
not that he doesn't respect our faithfulness, but he recognizes that we live in a dirty, defiled world. He recognizes the fact that we were shaped in iniquity and born into sin. He understands the struggle, and he's taken all of that into consideration, and all he requires that you do is just confess what you've done. If you'll confess what you've done, I'm the faithful one, is what Jesus says. And he says, I'll forgive your sins, and I'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So if I confess my sins today, right, and, and, and he cleanses me, am I clean? Am I pure? Yes, I am pure. But that doesn't mean five minutes later when temptation comes again, I have another decision to make. Isn't that right? I can choose to be with my Savior, or I can choose my sin and indulge it, and then the process begins again, right? Then 1 John 1.9 comes in again, and it says, if you'll confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And not that it's a, an excuse to fall into sin, not that I use that as a, an excuse to sin, but he says, if you fall, find yourself in a fallen state again, Mike, I promise that I'll be faithful, and when you come back to me, I'll wash you, I'll restore you, and I'll cleanse you from everything. And here we go again, isn't that right? And so I didn't understand that initially. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but he's long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so repentance isn't such a bad thing. And I put this quote up again. I don't know if you can read it. But it's actually by a woman, a lesbian activist called Camille uh, Paglia. And she says, Is the gay identity so fragile that it cannot bear the thought that some people may not wish to be gay? She says, Sexuality is highly fluid and reversals are theoretically possible. However, habit is refractory, and that means very difficult to change. Once the sensory pathways have been blazed and deepened by repetition, that's like that five-lane highway that we were talking about. It says, a phenomenon obvious in the struggle with obesity, smoking, alcoholism, or drug addiction. She says, helping gays to learn how to function heterosexually, if they wish, is a perfectly worthy aim. And so I use a lesbian activist quote who doesn't even acknowledge Jesus Christ to show that if somebody wants change, even according to the world, they're saying that it is possible. But imagine the kind of change that you can experience if you believe in Jesus Christ and you allow his blood to wash over you. How about that, right? And so repent. I want to play this uh, tape for you from Cy Rogers. I talked about the word sin. Let me conclude with the idea of repent. You ever heard that word repent? Repent! I don't think the Lord said it that way. I think it was more invitational. Repent. Be penitent again in a posture of humility, acknowledging need. The actual Hebrew definition of the word repent is much better, I think, than the Greek word. The Greek word is metanoia, and it means to change direction. Well, that's a useful thing. If you're over-drinking, do better. If you're gambling away your money, stop and reconsider. If you've been sleeping around, don't do it anymore to protect yourself and protect other people too. So we can repent, that is, in the Greek sense, we can do a turnabout, we can do a metanoia. But that's not the same as repentance in Hebrew. Because you know what? Self-improvement can improve your life in the short term, and that's a useful thing, but you can still go to hell. Here's the repentance I see in the Hebrew concept. In Hebrew, the word repentance also means three things. Number one, you wake up and you come to your senses. And then because you've awakened and come to your senses, you withdraw from the path you've been on. But you don't just take a new path, any old path. 
You're not just changing career or lifestyle. The Bible makes the point with the Hebrew concept of repentance that you take the one path back home to your father and everything he has waiting for you. As is always the case with God, repentance isn't behavioral modification. It's relational restoration. And I would ask you tonight, are you needing to come home? I had a person write to me in Los Angeles after hearing me speak, and he said, I've been a pastor's kid, and I walked away from God. And I've been off in sin, and it hasn't satisfied me like I thought it would. What would you tell me to do? And as a daddy myself, I said to him, I would tell you to come home. I would move heaven and earth to help my kid if she would just come to me. But to think she's bad and I am mad and she would run away would break my heart and would tell me she doesn't really understand my love. Is that the man that was speaking, he's the first testimony that I saw. Remember last night I was telling you about how um, he lived as a woman for a year and a half and the Lord brought him out, gave him a wife, a child. He now is a, a grandfather um, and a speaker. He's a, an international speaker who goes around the world for 30 years now. And so Sai really gave me a lot of uh, tools that I really could, could get my hands on and would help to explain what I was going through and, and help to give me hope and, and, uh, and instruction, I thought, on, on the ways out of, of, uh, of the sexual impurity that I was living in. God has provided means for subduing every evil trait and resisting every temptation, however strong. But many feel that they lack faith and therefore they remain away from Christ. Let these souls, in their helpless unworthiness, cast themselves upon the mercy of their compassionate Savior. Do not look to yourself, but look to Christ. He who healed the sick and cast out demons when he walked among men is still the mighty same, the same mighty Redeemer. Then grasp his promises as leaves from the tree of life. Him that comes to me, I will never cast out. And as you come to him, believe that he accepts you because he has promised. And you can never perish while you do this, never. So when I fell back into pornography and that behavior, what happened is I had to claim these promises. Because again, I felt so separated from God, I felt that I was worthless because I was still under the influence of the enemy. And so I'm, I'm going to explain that in just a minute. But, but as I started to claim these promises, even in my defiled state, I started to realize that I had to rely on his word rather than my feelings. And what that did is that started to move me into a faith walk. And as I moved into that faith walk, I started to experience more of that forgiveness. I started to feel or experience more of that restoration and peace that I long for. So I want to play for you uh, Keegan's testimony. When I was a little boy, my mom ended up leaving our home, and I was left with my father, and I was a really confused child wondering, why did mom leave? Why was mom and dad fighting? Why was I getting hit in the head with blow dryers? Why was the screaming going on? And I remember sitting in the court office with a social worker or the judge, I don't know who it was, and they asked, who would you like to live with? And I said, I would like to live with mommy and daddy and Uncle Johnny and Nana and Mama and Papa because I didn't know what was going on. I remember in fourth grade, I went to a birthday party. And at this birthday party, I was raped by several men. I walked upstairs to the room where we're playing video games. And, you know, you think of birthday parties, birthday cake and balloons and 
superheroes and whatever there is at a boy's birthday party in fourth grade. Uh, but it was nighttime, and they had found a pornographic magazine, and it had opened the door for the enemy to come in and have his way. And not many of us knew Jesus, and uh, we didn't know what was going on. We were just curious little kids, and we were looking at this magazine, and there was older guys that were there at the party, and my age, my peers. And before I knew it, I was sat up on the bed, held down, and I was taken advantage of by several men. The older guys were teaching my peers what to do, and I was crying and screaming, and uh, there was people in the other room, and somehow, subconsciously, I knew what they were doing in the other room. And after this thing happened to me, I remember going outside and sitting on the tan vinyl siding of the house, looking into the sky, crying, physically hurt, emotionally hurt, confused. Why did this happen? I mean, I'm a fourth grader. I'm learning multiplication. I'm getting held back from school because I can't read, and I'm doing tutor after school. I'm learning how to play soccer and basketball and um, just trying to be, you know, the cool kid at recess, but I'm set on a journey of having to figure out my sexual identity. Some of the thoughts that were flying through my mind at that time was immediately after the rape, should I tell somebody? And if I do tell them, will they believe me? And if they believe me, then will it be my fault? So I automatically took on the victim mentality, like this is my fault, I invited this thing, and it hurts, but I have to live with it. And so I kept it all in my heart, I kept it all in my soul, and I buried it in my mind, and I tried to deny what happened, but I couldn't, I mean, it was reality, it took place. And so I remember being in elementary school, after that happened, I was the gay kid, I was the girl, I was the one that out of, you know, with that spirit came feminacy and um, not wanting to play sports anymore and just different weird stuff that I had never experienced before. And kids were, you know, at the soccer field saying, you're a girl or you're a wimp. And I just remember sitting back and they're calling me this and they're saying that I'm that and they're saying that I'm you know, a faggot. They're saying that I'm gay. They're saying that I'm a, a sissy boy. So rather than trying to fight them and say that I'm not, why don't I just be? And that would be much easier than having to deny all of this stuff. And after that happened, you know, it started from thought. Well, at first it was action because I was molested and raped. But then after that, it started from thoughts, like maybe this is okay. If this is okay, let's try it out. And then I started to like trying it out. And from fourth grade till about four years ago, I kept giving myself away sexually to men and women. Pornography was actually the doorknob on the handle when the door was open because the magazine is what opened the door for all of this other stuff to happen because everyone was curious and they're looking at these pictures and then how about we try these pictures out we don't have the female gender but we have the male gender and I believe that that was the open door so in middle school and in high school pornography became a stronghold in my life and I became addicted to it to where I would look at it maybe four or five times six times a day uh, and it was a f temporary fix for me. I, you know, was introduced to alcohol for the first time. I got alcohol poisoning the first time I drank. I was mixing my colors because I didn't know how to party, but I just wanted to 
ease the pain and kind of escape reality for a little bit. And in that process, I'm still giving myself away emotionally and sexually to men and women, just really trying to find a place to belong, trying to find someone that would love me, trying to find someone that would affirm me in some twisted, perverted, sexual way. I was trying to find that. And in my junior year, I skipped school one day and I went down to the river. This is a real story. I went down to the river and I went to an abandoned building and I smoked marijuana for the first time. And what I liked about marijuana at the time was that I could escape reality. My mind could be at ease and I could suppress suppress the issues that were in my heart. I didn't have to deal with Kagan in fourth grade. I didn't have to deal with why am I feeling this way. I didn't have to deal with why am I thinking this way. I didn't have to deal with why are my my dad and I not getting along. Why did mom leave? I didn't have to deal with all that. I could just escape reality for a little bit and four or five hours, depending on how good the high was, and just, you know, chill and just be relaxed and um, not be hurt. And I, it was like a deceiving freedom, a deceiving liber- liberty that had that drugs had given me. Not only was I addicted to drugs, but I was on alcohol, but I was uh, having sexual relationships with men and women. I was a compulsive liar, but I was also addicted to mer- material things to the point where I would steal from my family so that I could purchase the items that I want. It was my junior year in high school, and I had always had a hunger for the Lord. I always somehow wanted to know who he was. And though I thought that he hated me for my lifestyle, and though I thought he despised me because I was bisexual, I still wanted to know who he was and ask him questions and ask him, why as a little boy did that happen to me? Why did I keep giving myself away? Why was I dealt this hand of cards in my life? Why, why, why? Just question, question, question. And I want an answer. And I knew somehow, it was like deep, 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 deep. Somehow I knew he was love and I needed the love that he had. I wanted to go to youth group and I wanted to go to church and get saved. And I wanted to know God. And I started to go to church and I was going to an Assemblies of God church. And it was called Fuel on Wednesday nights. And I would go and I would watch people and I wanted what they had, but I had something different. And I was I was kind of hungry for them, but my appetite for the world was stronger. And so I kept living this life and I would just, I would kind of want that, but then want this, want sin and darkness and destruction more. And I would sit in my bed at night crying myself to sleep. I just was at this place where nobody really cares. Nobody really loves. Nobody really genuinely cares about my feelings or thinks that I'm worth it or thinks that, I mean, what am I going to do in my life? And all these questions were coming into play. And I would, I remember sitting in my bed at night, looking at my ceiling, crying myself to sleep, saying, God, I don't want to be like this. I don't want to think this way. I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to want that image more than this image. I don't want that person more than this person. Can you help me? Somehow in the middle of the night when I'm crying, I would utter utter out of my mouth saying, I want to love what you love about me. And I want to hate what you hate about me. And God, I know you hate homosexuality and I want to hate it too. I know that you hate drug addiction and I want to hate it too. I just came to the place where I said, I need you, Jesus. What? Isn't that powerful? 
Now, I don't know if you picked up on that, because I think I picked up on it myself for the first time today. At nine years old, he was molested. And it wasn't until he was a junior in high school that he started to have this desire to want to know the Lord. That's a long time for this, for this young man to be going through all of that confusion and the things in his head and the, the things that he was experiencing. What He says it so much better than I could possibly say it. But I want to talk about like when I found myself in a fallen state, I was feeling guilty. I was feeling worthless. I was feeling condemned. All of those feelings were coming in. And, and I thought that that was condemnation from God. I didn't understand the fact that I was still under the, the influence of the enemy because I'd given into that behavior. And I, didn't, I, I, I knew that those feelings were keeping me from coming to God. And sometimes it would take as many as two or three days or maybe even a couple of weeks before I would finally come back to God and just say, Lord, I'm sorry. Can you forgive me for this? God wants us to come to him immediately, right? And, and you'll see a clip where we talk about running to God instead of from him. And I had to start learning the process of running to God. And Keegan explains it in such a way, I think, I think it'll really um, kind of clarify what happens when we give in to sin and the guilt and condemnation that we face. And my prayer or my hope is that, is that you'll see it for what it is and that it'll move you past the feelings and into more of a faith in claiming what you have a right to. life to destroy the works of darkness. And here's the, here's the truth about Satan. He is a liar. He's the father of all lies. We know that. And I've, I'm sure you've heard, don't empower the liar. And the thing about Satan is Satan is worthless. And he wants you to make you feel like you're worthless. Satan has failed God. And he wants you to feel like you failed God. Satan is sick. And he wants you to be sick. Satan is dying and he's always in fear and he wants you to be dying and always in fear. And so when I, you know, what I like to encourage people is that when you feel like you failed God or you feel like you're worthless or you feel like you have messed up really, really bad, that's the enemy. And the only power that the enemy has is the power that you give him. So let's not empower the liar. And so, and and it's just simply as saying, I'm not going to think that thought. This is what God says about me and whatever he says about you, that he's ravished at one glance from your heart or that you're his son and he's your father or when he says he wants to abide in you and you abide in him, whatever it may be, just take passages of scripture that is truth and allow the truth to set you free and set you free not only from something but into something and that's into his heart and to being that place of saying he delights in me. And just, it's, it's, a quick, it's a simple, quick shift of just, no, I'm not a failure. I succeed and I'm more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. You see how he used scripture to actually support the fact that regardless of my feelings, God says this about me, and we have the right to claim his scriptures. They're provided for our benefit to restore us and bring us back into communion with God. Doesn't that make sense? Didn't he say that really well? Because while we're under the influence of the enemy, that made perfect sense. He's worthless, and he wants me to feel worthless. He is, is past the, uh, the reach of God, and he wants us to feel like we're past the reach of God. Oh, how do I go back? Can I go back?
Small one? Thanks. Hey, so to the person that just had a full meal, right? Dessert isn't necessary. But to somebody who's starving, even something bitter can taste sweet. So I talked about that yesterday, how I was yearning for male love. I didn't get it from my father. I didn't get it from the kids in school. And so I had this deficit. What happens is the same thing happens for women. Women that grow up without a father that loved them, supported them, that bounced them on the knees. For every little girl, they need a father that says, you're valuable, you're a princess, and I'm going to protect you, right? And so for girls that didn't have that, what happens for them is they also go through the same thing. And that's why you see girls that are provocatively dressed from the ages about 13 on, because they have a real need, a real deficit inside, a demand to have that satisfied. Sex is like super glue, and I spoke about it this morning. What happens is if I take super glue and I, and I glue two pieces of plastic get together, it works, right? Can I use your hand? And, and so if I, if I take super glue and I put it on Natalie's finger and I put my finger on it, is it going to work? Yes, it'll work. And so super glue is what God gave us, that hormone that's released whenever you have a sexual release. What happens is that's the super glue. Thank you. And so what happens is it, it will glue you and bind you to whatever you're, you're exposed to at that time because if we do it according to God's way, it's supposed to put you together with your, your husband or your, your uh, wife. And the idea is that it bonds you together. But remember, the Bible also talks about that, that you know, when a man leaves his uh, mother and a woman leaves her home, the two shall be what? One flesh. Isn't that right? And so how can I get true fulfillment? The fear of the Lord tends to life, and he that has it will abide satisfied. And so having sex with Satan, we were made to have sex with another person. And when you engage in masturbation, who are you having sex with? And if you're not having sex with another person, who's arousing you? And the point that I'm trying to make is that there is this demonic influence that's coming in behind. It's not just your thoughts that are creating this drive. And if they're not from God, then they have to be from the enemy. Isn't that right? Isn't that fair to say? It's not a gay thing. It's not a straight thing. It's a sexual thing. At the very least, what are your thoughts when you're engaging in that behavior? And so I have young men that will come to me and they'll say, you know, I, I can do that act without thinking about anything. And I said, really? And I said, you know, I indulged that for almost 40 years. I can tell you with uncertainty that you cannot engage in that behavior without including the mind. The senses, Alan White says, the senses, the nerves, the passions, the very organs of men were controlled by supernatural agencies in the indulgence of the vilest lust. The very stamp of demons was impressed upon the countenances of men. And so what was amazing is that even the things that we think about, even the things that the, the looks on our faces, and when you stop and think about it, look at this woman. Doesn't that look like all of the magazine images that you see in, in television today? Isn't that the same images that you see on billboards that are, that, are, that are splattered all over the city? Is they're always creating this look of lust, and that's what sells. And, and you know, we're being bombarded by it constantly by seeing the very acts of these demons that are, that are impressed upon the countenances of men. Like, that was a powerful uh, message to me. An incubus is a male demon believed to have sexual intercourse with sleeping women. A succubus is a female demon believed to have sexual intercourse with sleeping men. I didn't understand this application until I was experiencing it and struggling with it myself. Once I'd gotten the victory over the sexual, uh, the, the issue of acting out with pornography and, and sexual acting out, what happened is then I started having these demonic dreams, these homoerotic dreams. And so what was happening is I was having as many as two or three a night 
And, and what I realized is that what was, what was happening is that now that I didn't have the issue with the physical, sin was still originating in my mind. If I had indulged anything during the day, if I had looked at something and indulged that thought and didn't surrender that to the throne of grace, what was happening is I was allowing the enemy to have a foothold into my dreams. And therefore, he was able to manifest himself in my dreams, even though I wasn't even touching myself. It wasn't until I started getting in the habit of before I go to bed at night, I was having to confess everything. I would ask the Holy Spirit, can you show me where I may have indulged something, Lord, so that not only can I have a peaceful night's sleep, but that I might be reconciled to my Savior in a legitimate way and have that power to reside over me. And so the Holy Spirit was indeed uh, very specific, and he would show me anything that I might have indulged in. Because you know what? Well, it's up here. let's, Let's find it. All right, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. We talked about this a little bit last night. Raise your hand if you were here last night. Okay, and so I think it bears, you know, talking about again. What happens is when the DNA comes together, when the sperm and the egg meet, what happens is the, the DNA is filled with everything that's happened through three or four generations. The Bible confers, confirms this with Exodus 20, verse 5. And so they've also scientifically proven that what happens is, is my mother was molested by her father. My mother's mother was actually raped by her stepfather. My great-grandmother on my mother's side was actually a prostitute during the Depression. You can see that there's a link of sexual sin just on my mother's side alone. On my father's side, my father was a sexual addict as well. I was indulging in his pornography when I was 16 years old. When I would clean his offices, I would find it in his desk. And so uh, my dad was also hot-headed Italian. He had a very bad temper. His mother before him was actually raised by a single mother during the Depression because uh, her husband had actually shot and murdered a man that he thought was having an affair with his wife. So now you can see that, you know, the anger management problem. You can see how that comes down through the generations. Uh, my father's father was also uh, sexually active. He waited till he was 35 years old. He was a musician. So what you can start to see is that through the generations, the sexual issue has come down. I've talked to many people that, you know, that um, have experienced the same thing. As a matter of fact, let me give you an example. Uh, Arlene Taylor, who actually is a psychologist that works through Loma Linda, she actually was telling uh, this story at a camp meeting that, that I found out about this. And she was talking about how this this, these two boys, they were twins, but they totally went to different schools. But each one of them on the same day got arrested for doing sexual acting out, 17 years old. And so one boy was actually peeping Tom in the girl's um, shower, and the other kid was exposing himself to young girls, right? And so what happened is Arlene Taylor was counseling with them, and, and, and the father was there, and she looked right at the father, and she said, at 17 years old, did you have a sexual problem? And his wife looked at him, and he said, I have to confess, I did. He was also indulging as a peeping Tom when he was 17 years old, and he also got caught. She said, is the grandfather alive? Is the father's father still alive? And, she, and they said, yes, bring him in. And they brought him in and found that he also, at 17 years old, had had a sexual fall acting out. So what they started to show was that there is a link through the DNA. As a matter of fact, let me give you another example There was a young boy who was 13 years old, and he was obsessed with hanging himself. The mother didn't know what to do, and she brought him to uh, Dr. Taylor, and she sat down and she said, you know, has anything happened in his life that would, you know, make him obsessed with with suicide? And she said, nothing. And she said, well, you know, what was your pregnancy like? And she said, well, I had a normal pregnancy, and, you know, and I delivered fine or whatever. And she said, did anything traumatic happen while you were pregnant? 
And she had never shared this with her son before, but she said, my father used to watch my children while I was working, and I was about seven months pregnant. And what happened is one day she was pulling into the driveway, and she hit the button for a garage door open, you know, to open. And when it opened, there she saw the image of her father who had hung himself that day. The 12-year-old boy stood up. He jumped up, and he goes, that's it. That's it. Ever since I could remember, I remember seeing a man hanging himself. That's it. Isn't that something? So what she experienced while he was in vitro was passed on to this kid, and here he was as a, as a young adult, still obsessed with the images that his mother saw. And so the DNA carries with it incredible things. As a matter of fact, Ministry of Healing talks about the care of a pregnant woman, doesn't she? She talks about not only the food that you eat will actually influence the character of the child, but the things that you're exposed to will actually create certain characteristics in a child. That if you've been exposed to trauma, what happens is a lot of times that baby might be colicky or might you know, uh, be restless or anxious because of what he was exposed to while you were pregnant with him. So this starts to hold true. But she goes on to say, she goes, it's inevitable that the children should suffer from the consequences of parental wrongdoing, but they are not punished for their parents' guilt except as they participate in their sins. She goes on to say, it's usually the case, however, that children walk in the steps of their parents. By inheritance and example, the sons become partakers of the father's sin. Wrong tendencies, perverted appetites, debased morals, as well as physical disease and degeneracy are transmitted as a legacy from father to son to the third and fourth generation. This fearful truth should be a solemn power to restrain men from following a course of sin. And so in my own life, I realized that my father struggled with pornography and sexual addiction. And so I wasn't guilty of his sins, but it made it much easier to fall into that, that trap as well. And I gave in. I was a willing participant, but I didn't understand the fact that genetics had played a part in this breakdown in my own life. And so one of the things that I believe is if you have children, if you want to leave them a legacy, praise God you haven't had children yet. And so, so if this is your desire then I just want you to remember that everything that you indulge in, that DNA is being stacked up and it's going to be passed on to your children. And the only way that you can break that cycle is by allowing Jesus to come in, to give us overcoming victory. He doesn't want you to cover your sins because you can't cover your sins. You're going to pass that on through your DNA. And so I also want to go to the other side because there's a lot of parents that come to me that have sons that are gay, and they say, I feel guilty, I feel like I must have passed this on to my kids. All I'm talking about here is the genetic predisposition and things that happen. But remember, remember, even the most perfect parents in the world that were ever created, they had a son that fell, isn't that right? Adam and Eve had a son that killed their own brother, isn't that right? And they were perfect parents. Let's go one step further. Even God the Father himself lost one of his created beings, isn't that right? And he was a perfect father. And so it's not, I'm not here to condemn parents that have children that are struggling or, or children that are out there. All I'm trying to point out is, is that the damage that we've experienced, that we pass on to our children unless we break that cycle through the power of Jesus Christ. Hatred of sin is vital to full salvation. Humanly speaking, no man is safe until he has learned to hate sin as deeply as he formerly loved it. He may resist sin, he may even flee from it, but as long as there is a lingering love of sin in the heart, he is not on safe ground. As love of good is vital, so also is hatred of evil. It may truly be said that our capacity for love of the good is measured and balanced by our capacity for the hatred of evil. 
And this was a really tough lesson for me. As a matter of fact, what happened is I sought out the counsel of this man that I really respected. I went across the country to, to ask this man questions. And, and a friend of mine, uh, my young friend, he was about 12 years younger than me. He also had left his boyfriend. He had also left a gay lifestyle. And we wanted to know how to get victory over fantasy and masturbation. And so we went up to this person that we respected and we asked him, I said, listen, we're really struggling how can I get this sin out of my life? As a matter of fact, I was reading in Testimonies on Sexual Behavior uh, and Divorce and Adultery. It's called TSB, or the initials, um, and it's a compilation. And basically, one night, this man came up to Ellen White and said, you know, I'm sick, my wife is sick, my family's sick, and he said, can you pray for me? And for some reason, she said, listen, come back tomorrow. You know, I just feel impressed that I need to pray about this. And he said, okay. So that night while she was asleep in her hotel room, the Lord gave her a dream about what was going on, and and he showed her that he had been indulging in masturbation from the time that he was 15. She said that, that, that he was so addicted to this sin that it actually interfered even, that he carried it into the marriage relationship. She went on to say that even the reason that her, his son died was because of this vile habit. How could your son actually die because... You're indulging in secret sin is what they called it. And so it wasn't until I realized that, that whether it's masturbation or an illicit situation, what's happening is we're allowing demonic forces in our minds, right? And, and so let's say that, that you know, my wife and I are together. She doesn't know anything that's going on, but I'm having an affair during lunch, right? And, and so she doesn't know anything that's going on. I'm still coming back home. Only what's happened is as I've engaged in an illicit situation with another woman, we've actually shared those demons. Isn't that right? So now I come back home to my wife, and she deserves how much of me? All of me, isn't that right? And so she somehow, whether even if she doesn't know that I'm having an affair, she, there's something that's missing because I'm not giving her 100% of me, and I'm under that demonic influence, right? I'm not connected to Christ, obviously. So what happens is she's not able to receive from me what she deserves. Therefore, she's broken, and now she's not going to be able to give my children what they deserve either. I've allowed these demons to come into the home, whether it's through pornography or an illicit situation, through homosexuality or whatever it is, it's still a demonic influence that I've allowed in my house. And not only did it make him sick, but his family sick and even caused the death of his son. Can you start to see the power that this has over our families? And so for me, this, this understanding is, I went to that man and he said, listen, he said, you have to think of your sin as this beast. And what happened is when I was young, I was indulging, I was feeding that beast all day long. My beast was fat and happy, right? Just think of it, fat and happy, sitting there burping and belching all over the place. And so then I accept Jesus as my Savior, right? So now what happens is I stop feeding it so often. Maybe I'm only feeding it once a day, maybe once a week, maybe even once every three or four months. But remember, our hearts are wicked above all who can know it, right? And so what happened is I loved my sin. I loved my sin so much that I was desperately trying to find ways that I could indulge it, even though I knew that it was wrong. And so I use the example of my mother. My mother said that she smoked for over 50 years, and when she finally quit smoking, she said, if I felt like I lost my best friend. I said, what? She goes, it was my best friend. Through the breakups with different men, you know, whenever I was in a good mood, my cigarettes were there. When I was in a bad mood, my cigarettes were there. It was like my best friend. And I said, but mom, your best friend was killing you. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, Mike, your best friend is killing you. I hadn't learned to hate my sin as much as I loved it. 
And so I was constantly trying to kid myself into thinking that I can indulge it, or I'd been a good boy for six months, I certainly deserved it now. And so again, when we kid ourselves, when we, when we try to find excuses to indulge our sin, we truly haven't gotten to the point where we really hate it. And what my friend said to me is, is said, even if the beast is starving, even if you're only feeding it a crumb every couple of months, the fact remains that you've got to determine that the beast must die. You've got to slit its throat. You've got to stab it in the heart. You've got to dig out its heart and stomp it until it's not breathing anymore. And when he gave me that information, it helped me to see that what I was doing was destructive in my own mind to think that if I was good enough that I can indulge it every now and then, I had to determine that this had to leave my life. And when I made that decision and when I started praying that way, then what happened is great victories came. Because what was happening is I was kidding myself into thinking, well, you know, I could still hang on to this in some way. It makes sense. We love our sin. And if you started off with this habit when you were very young, it makes sense that those patterns are so ingrained. What am I going to do if I'm not able to indulge this? What am I going to fill that with, right? But again, remember, the secret to fulfillment is the respect of the Lord, right? Allowing the Lord to satisfy you. This is the verse that I was looking for. This is the one where it says that a man shall leave his wife and the two become one flesh. But remember, Corinthians also talks about what? Don't you know that he that is joined to a prostitute is also one flesh? So this is the whole thing about the superglue. It works whether you use it for good or for bad. It still has the effect. Satan knows that he could take the blessing that the God gave us, you know, for the, the hormones that are released, that they can be used in a good way, a healthy, a wholesome way, or they could be used in a wrong way also. It is the spirit that quickens. It's the flesh that profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. So we know that life is in the spirit, right? And that the flesh profits nothing. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members, servants, to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now, even if that's been your pattern, the Bible goes on to say only now, Yield your members, servants, to righteousness and holiness, meaning acknowledge that this is just creating death for you and switch over, make an acknowledgement of that you want to walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. Romans 6, and 23, but now being made free from sin and become servants of God, you have your fruit unto holiness. And the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.21, what fruit had you then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Again, acknowledging the things that take us down, right? Acknowledging the difference between the flesh and the spirit and making a conscious decision of what you want working in your life. Galatians 5.24, and they that are Christ, pure and simple, here it is. It's a nice formula, right? Those that are in Christ, period, have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lust. That's inclusive. Not only was that talking about my same-sex attraction and homosexuality. As a matter of fact, there was a gentleman at Potluck that made it so painfully clear. I wish I could remember exactly how he put it. But he said that he said to me, he, he confided in me that as a young kid, he had indulged in same-sex and, and, and that when he was about 12 years old, and he said, I enjoyed it. He said, but then all of a sudden, I read that it was an abomination to God. And he said, if it isn't good for me, I don't want it. And for him, that was a turning point, and he never struggled with it again. 
So again, recognizing that God put in his word exactly what keeps his children happy and healthy. Isn't that right? And so even if it feels good, if God says it's not good for me, I have to make a choice. Am I going to continue to indulge it even though it feels good to me? Am I going to rationalize my sin and try to pretend that God will overlook it or accept it? Or am I going to accept the word of God and realize that God is good all the time and that if, if he asked me to restrict myself even from anything that feels good, that there must be a reason why do I trust God enough to allow him to be master of my life or am I going to allow myself to be master? As you have given him power over all flesh. There you go. Give him power over your flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Romans 8, 8. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, this isn't, this isn't specific. It's not restricted to homosexuality. It's called the sin problem. It's called the sex problem. Isn't that right? And one of the things that I said last night to some people is, is what happened is, is, I think it's in Corinthians where it talks about the abominations that aren't going to be in heaven. Isn't that right? But what happens is, you know, what we've done in Christian culture is we've taken homosexuality out, and what we've done is we've elevated it to this sin above all sins. It's the sin that God just can't help. And what's happened is we've promoted that. We've talked about it for so many uh, decades now that what's happened is the gay community said, oh, yeah? If this is the sin that God can't help, then we want special rights. Not only do we want special rights, but we want special treatment as well. Here's the solution. If we take homosexuality and we put it right back in the pot with all of the other sexual sins, then guess what? It doesn't make you special anymore. You're as damaged as I am. And you know what it does is it takes away the, um, that, that pious attitude that we as Christians have when we're condescending to homosexuals or anybody else. And instead what it does is it says, hey, brother, I'm struggling just like you. Hey, you know, nobody's better than anybody else. I'm a sinner, and we can walk together because we know where the answer lies. Isn't that right? Isn't that what our job is to do? And so by accepting homosexuality into our churches, we're denying somebody access to the throne of grace. Because really, if you believe that homosexuality is that sin that God just can't help, then you don't believe in a powerful Jesus either. And we make Jesus Christ impotent when we say that this is an acceptable sin. Isn't that right? Romans 8, 9, and 10 says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if any man has not the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. It doesn't matter whether you're gay or whether you're in an adulterous situation or if you're struggling with pornography and masturbation. You are not his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness.
it's their problem and not my problem. Because usually it's me. If, if anything messes up, it's always me. Reputation was there. Okay, great. Can you just hit it again? Oh, yeah. Thank you. I thought that the day my story came out, my ministry would be over. Turns out that's the day it started. Reputation was everything for me. I set out uh, to build a good reputation and to protect it, which meant that there were parts of my life that I couldn't let anybody see. There were some battles I had to fight alone. I got my first look at hardcore pornography on a seminary-sponsored trip to New York City. My wife was with me. They took us on a tour of Times Square so that we could see firsthand how women are exploited by the sex business. I was shocked by what I saw and disgusted by it. But I was also fascinated. It hit me, hooked me deep. I didn't just like porn. I became obsessed with it. And it eventually took me places I never intended to go. So before I know it, I'm a, I'm a pastor, married, three kids, and I'm picking up my first hooker on my way to lead a candlelight service on Christmas Eve. I only lasted five years in the ministry. I was never caught, but I was terrified of losing my reputation. My life was out of control. I'd lost any hope that I could stop what I was doing, so I bailed on the ministry, went into business, succeeded in business. But that's about the only thing I succeeded at. Those were dark years. My life got smaller and smaller. I hated what I was doing. I remember so many times screaming at God as I pulled away from some place I shouldn't have been, banging on the steering wheel, saying, take this away. I don't want to do this anymore. He never answered that prayer. Eventually, I concluded that either he didn't care or he didn't exist. Today, I'm so glad he didn't answer that prayer. I think we're all made for intimacy. But intimacy carries its risks. People can reject us. People can disappear. They can die. Pornography offers this artificial intimacy with no risks. So every day I said hello to the, to the woman who wouldn't laugh at me or who found me attractive, engaging. And every day I gave a piece of myself away. It left me emptier and hungrier every time. And yet I kept coming back. I was oblivious 
to what it was doing to my wife. Until one day she caught me. I don't know how long she'd been standing there, but she was crying. And so I apologized and we talked it through. And I was still afraid. A few days later, she found a, a condom on the floor in the bathroom that I couldn't quite explain. This time, she didn't cry. She sat me down on the edge of our bed and she said, I'm done. I still love you, but I don't like you. I don't trust you. I don't respect you. And I don't believe you can ever change. That's what it took for me to get out of my private world. Living in the truth, walking in the light, no matter how other people might perceive it. I mean, that's, that's freedom. And to know that I'm, I don't have to perform to be accepted. I always felt bad that I wasn't a better person. I even created this false self, this Saint Nate, that I tried to make breathe on its own. I felt bad that, that Saint Nate could only live at church. Now I know that Jesus never loved Saint Nate. Because he didn't make Saint Nate. He made me. Jesus loves me. Wants a relationship with me. And that's the only real relationship there is. There's a tremendous liberty when you arrive in a place that's safe enough to bring your real self and say the real truth. They were men who did that for me, Christian men. And I found that I could give the same gift to another guy, sit down over a cup of coffee and just tell him my story. And even if his life is different from mine, and everybody's life is different from mine in the details, something about my story resonated with his. And so many times, by the time we finished, he'd say, well, you know, I've never told anybody this, but he got a taste of freedom, too. Because of my addiction, I now understand that but only God is the center of things. He's actually used my addiction for good. Because of it, I've been forced to join the human race and surrender to a power greater than myself. God is good. God is love. And if I'll follow the path that he's laid out for me, I can live every day in the warmth of his love, and I can reflect it to others. I don't think I ever really met Jesus until I stepped out of my, my church persona and became just another desperate, broken man. That's when he really became real to me. This isn't the ministry I've, I planned. <laughs> but I know it's mine. And, uh, and my wife knows it too. We're in it together. My wife will tell you today that she's been married to two guys named Nate Larkin. 
as hard as those first 20 years were, she'd take him again to get the last 10. I'm Nate Larkin, and I am second. That's something. Remember, he said we were made for intimacy. Isn't that right? One day I got off the plane and I was picked up by the pastor and I was about to have a men's ministry meeting. And as I was riding with the pastor, he looked at me and he said, you think that you're here for my church. He said, but you're really here for me. He'd been addicted to pornography ever since he was 13 years old. And so as we're riding in the car, we had several hours to go before we got to his home. I started to ask him questions and really... Let me just be open with you. If you struggle with any kind of sexual issue, I believe that the root cause is that you have been broken in an intimate area. And, and let me explain. As I was talking to the, to the pastor, I asked him, I said, you know, this started when you were 13. He had an older brother that he found his pornography and he was indulging in it. And I said, did anything traumatic happen to you as a kid? And he said, no, nothing. I go, oh, okay. I said, do you have, you know, brothers and sisters? He goes, yeah, I have an older brother, but I used to have two. And I go, huh? And he said, yeah, my, my, um, my middle brother, he was the youngest, and he had an older brother and then a middle brother that was closer to his age that was actually killed in a car accident when he was eight years old. And I go, really? I said, you're a pastor, right? You've, been, you, you've got a doctorate in, in counseling, and you don't think that that's significant, that at eight years old, you lost your middle brother? And he goes, oh, I, I never really thought of it that way. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is what I believe is, is the pornography in his life became a vital escape for him because at eight years old, when you lose your brother that's the closest to you in age, and even if you fought and carried on, what happened is there's a breakdown in intimacy. What I mean by that is, is if you had experienced an intimate relationship with this brother, and now all of a sudden through an accident, he's gone and out of your life, and you never had an opportunity to say goodbye, then the grief can be so difficult that you may shut down and not be able to experience intimacy again with anybody for fear that it would make you vulnerable, for fear that you couldn't handle the loss again. And I believe that what happened to that pastor is he denied the loss of his brother to the point where it broke him intimately. And what it did is it opened up this avenue because he was still desperate for some type of intimacy. And the only one that could satisfy him without any risk that somebody may reject him or leave him or abandon him was pornography. So if you notice, even Nate started to talk about some of the issues of intimacy. And this is where I usually wind up when I'm speaking to churches is, is if you don't have a men's ministry, and, and for what I've experienced here, I'd be surprised if you don't have one. Praise God. Because I'm already seeing the effects of that. But here's the deal. A men's ministry that just cuts firewood for a, a little old lady that, you know, can't cut wood for herself, or, or a men's ministry that only helps people, you know, move from one house to another, you're not really dealing with the real issues that men really struggle with. However, those are good beginnings. Men don't relate like women relate. You know, women, they, they sit face-to-face, and they have tea, and they, they cut the crust off their toes. Guys, we just don't relate that way, okay? Guys have to be in motion, right? And so a men's ministry that, that is active, that actually does that, that's the beginning. That's where it all starts with. Just like my friend Mark helping me, uh, you know, cut the wood or whatever for my fireplace, that began the relationship. As a matter of fact, 
one guy asked his father, he goes, Dad, who's your best friend? And he goes, well, it's my, it's my army buddy Joe back from you know, Vietnam. And he goes, Dad, you hardly talk to him. You, you only talk to him every couple of years. He says, but he was in the trenches with me, and we fought for, to save our lives. And, and that's how men define friendships, it is by actively working together, right? It's not going to come in a, in a social or, or a men's breakfast necessarily, there's still a benefit to that. But what I'm saying is men relate to men in a different way. And here's my challenge. I believe that if you started healing the men in this church, that you would then start to heal the women. And as you heal the men and the women start to, to finally get the 100% man that they were entitled to get, as, as the, even the single women here start to have men that are able to to be leaders of the church again and take some of that, the weight of responsibility that the women have been carrying for many uh, uh, decades, then what happens is the kids will start to get healthy too. Because you know what What happened to me at 20 years old is I walked out of church culture because I could tell your religion wasn't working for you and I walked right out. I believe the number one reason why we lose our youth is not because the music isn't exciting enough or, or the service isn't you know, filled with bells and whistles. I believe the number one reason that we're losing our youth is because they look at you and they see that you haven't got it. And so if it's not working for you, how's it going to work for them? Here's what I believe. God set up the structure. When I was gay in the gay life, I saw men in dresses and I saw women in suits. And you know what? To me, it didn't matter. I didn't care. And so when I come into church culture, I say, what's the big deal about women's ordination or whatever all the issues are about whether women are in certain roles or men are in certain roles? You know what? The only thing I know is that God made the rules and he asked us to follow them. And so there's a priority that he says is the way certain things work. And I believe that if you empower the men and you start to give them the, the healing that they are entitled to, that they are desperate to receive, that they have been so afraid to show or to reveal for fear of rejection, for fear of judgment, that I believe that what will happen is this trickle-down effect and you'll have a church that is able to receive the community because you will be an example of what healing truly looks like. What I found in my church is as I started to experience, I, I, I went to a church that, that had maybe 20 members. And remember, when I went to the foot washing, how, how my brother, he just bathed over my feet and told me that I was valuable in his church. He told me that, that, um, that I had uh, gifts that were beneficial to the church and that he loved me. And, and it, wasn't an, it wasn't a sexual thing, but what he did is he extended himself to me. And then as he prayed over me, every man in that room got up and they put their hands on me. And what happened is I was experiencing healing. They didn't know how to heal a homosexual, but they did know how to listen to the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit was moving in their lives, the Holy Spirit said, go and touch that brother and include him. And while you may not be able to relate to his struggle or whatever, he's a man and that's how I ordained him to be and your responsibility is to include him. And that for me was healing. Thank you. As a matter of fact, um, uh, remember, I came to church and I said, you know, I, I come from uh, homosexuality and sexual addiction. Do you have room in your church for me? And the brother said, well, yeah, have a seat with all the other sinners, and can you preach every now and then because we don't have a regular pastor? <laughs> and, and so what happened is I was preaching. It had been about a year. Occasionally I would preach. And so uh, during the benediction, the, the elder came up, an incredible man, a humble man, about 70 years old, he, he'd been working in a factory, you know, for all of his career. Uh, his ch children had grown up in the church, and he had grandchildren and great-grandchildren in the church. He was a slight guy. He'd also overcome, sec or, uh, I'm sorry, 
drug addiction in his own life. And so what he did is he came up to the podium with me, and what he did is, as he started to give the benediction, he put his arm around me. Now, one of the things that I've learned since I've come back to church is I don't give guys hugs unless they give me a hug. And if a guy gives me a hug, my thing is hug and release, right? I don't want them to think that I'm copping a feel, and I don't want them to get uncomfortable with me. And so for many years, for at least 10 years, that's how, that was my MO, right? So here I am, and my brother Billy, he puts his arm around me, and he's pulling me in, and I can feel his chest touch my chest, even from the side. I can feel his words coming from his chest into my chest, and that was a feeling I hadn't felt in a long time. My fear was that it was going to turn me on or it was going to excite me. And you know, I've been learning that process of crucifying the flesh. Here I am standing in front of the very congregation that I had preached to, and my brother Billy is not letting go. He's hanging on to me. And just then, I said, Lord, please don't let this turn me on. And the Lord spoke to me immediately. He said, it wasn't intended to turn you on. It's intended to show you this is what healing feels like. It's not designed to be a turn on. That's what it's like to receive love from a male that isn't sexualized. And as I'm standing there in front of the congregation, the Lord is just pouring all this blessing on me saying, this is what it's like to belong to the men's club. This is what it's like to receive that healing. I'd like to say that every church understands that. And I don't even think that it was um, um, thought out by my brother Billy because one of the churches that I came from, I asked the pastor for a men's ministry. And the pastor said, well, we'll make you the head of the men's ministry. He said, no, no, you don't understand. I need to know what it's like to receive a men's ministry, you know, to receive that healing. I can't be in charge of something I have nothing, you know, no idea how to relate to. And he said, okay, come to the board meeting tonight and pitch your ideas. And so I came, and I came with some books and some videotapes. I had found a, a camp that was, would let us have a Father's Day retreat. I'd already come up with a speaker. So I pitched my idea to the board. The head elder was there. The pastor was there. All of the highly esteemed elders were there and deacons. And as I pitched my idea, one of the elders looked at me straight in the eye, and he goes, I don't want to be running around the woods like a bunch of gay men. And here I was totally emasculated in front of the church that I was supposed to be safe in. This was the church that supposedly loved me, and I'd been a good standing member for several years when this happened. And so what happened is I went home and I said, Lord, I hate your church, and I hate your people. And he said, so why do you go? And I said, I go because you tell me that that's where I'm supposed to go. And he said, so why do you go? I said, I go because that's where you said to worship you. He said, then do that. He said, and in the process, learn to forgive those men. He said, because that is my church, and those are my people, whether they're fallen or not, and your responsibility is to learn to forgive them. And so what happened is I stayed in that church for three more years. They took me out of all of my leadership positions or whatever. They, they thought that I was too dangerous to be put in a leadership position. And I said, Lord, just give me Bible studies. Just give me people I can study with. So what happened is, is the Lord brought me these sisters, and we were studying together, and I brought them to my church. And they really didn't like the big church. They wanted a smaller church. And when I took them to the small church, they felt happy there. And I said, Lord... Am I supposed to just drop them off and then go back to church? And he said, no, it's time to go. I had done my part. I had learned the forgiving process. And then I was finally released. I was able to go to the church where I did experience what that healing was like. So again, I'm not mad. I'm not upset. I understand that that's the way you know, things are in our church culture. And we all come from damaged backgrounds. Isn't that right? I want to share with you um, the testimony of Lisa Luby Ryans. 
again, talking about the damage that we all experience and go through and how things from the past can actually influence the things that are in our present. And unless we find a safe place where we can actually open up and start talking and dialoguing about the things that are taking us out, that what happens is we, press, we repress the hurt, we repress the pain, and what happens is we are, it's almost like we are locked into continuing the same, repeating the same patterns of our fallen and broken nature. What if we could allow people to truly be transparent? And after you listen to Lisa's testimony, I want to talk about that just a little bit. I wanted to be a wife and a mother that was different than the wife that I had seen my mother be and give my children a different childhood that I had. And so I had spent my years dreaming of what I thought a marriage should be and what a husband should be and one who would protect me and guide me and um, love me. I grew up not knowing what a family was. My mother's identity came from men. I saw men come in and out of our home. We were sworn to secrecy. Our house as a child was very chaotic. We never knew if my dad was drinking when he came home, if and when he came home. My dad raped me at the age of six and throughout um, my life up until about the time I was 16. And you know, everything about my childhood, it was just, um, it was lonely. It was, it was hard. It was not what a child deserved to have. I continued to follow in the life of finding men who were abusive, what I knew, abusive um, alcoholics. But all I wanted was to be loved. And for me, being loved was having a sexual relationship. I was willing to do anything to have that. I left my husband and my children for another man. It was very hard. Um, you know, I learned behavior. I was doing all of the things that I had promised and wanted never to do um, to my children. I was repeating that behavior. I felt dirty, I felt shameful, I felt um, guilty. I didn't want the life that I had. I wanted to be um, different. I would say, okay, Lord, you know, I'm gonna just trust you and I'm gonna share the desires of my heart with you. And we're just gonna walk this out because you're all I've got. That night I asked Jesus into my life. He was my only hope because the course I was taking was a crash course and I needed him. This was in February. Well, in March, April, I met a man. And I just knew he was from God. By August, Jay and I were engaged. We bought a beautiful home together. And he loved me 
any love for my children. God spoke to me one day, as clear as clear can be, and he said, he said to me, he goes, how can I heal you if you're not willing to heal yourself? I gave him his ring back, and um, I told him, I said, God has spoken to me personally, and um, I have to trust him, and I have to let him be um, the husband that I've never had, the father that I never had. I have to let him provide for me because otherwise our marriage would never work. someone that I could trust, that I could share my deepest, darkest secrets with. I had started Christian counseling with a, um, an inner healing process with an amazing woman named Joyce. There were days where we would just pray and we wouldn't say anything. And there were other days where we would go through step by step as if peeling an onion and just revealing in, in, uh, in each layer that came off, the closer I knew I was to a new life. It was easier for me to share what my mother had done or my father had done or my ex-husband had done. But it was harder for me to share what I had done. One day I showed up um, for our counseling session and I went in and said, okay, Joyce, I've forgiven everybody, you know, my mother for this, this, and this, my father for this, this, and this. And I said, I'm done. I am ready to go. I am ready to continue my walk with Jesus. And um, she just sat there. And she sat there. She goes, and she prayed and she said, there's still more work to be done. And I wanted to run and I wanted to go. And I couldn't because I knew what my choice was. I could either go back to the life I had or to continue on this walk. And uh, I said, okay, I've got one more thing to tell you. And um, she just sat there and prayed. And I said, my senior year of high school, I had an abortion. All I wanted was to be loved. And that's all I knew to do. And she just sat, and she sat, and she sat, and she prayed. And uh, I thought, okay, why can't I leave? And um, she just continued to sit there, and I said, okay, this is it. I'm going to tell you one last thing, and I'm finished. After I left um, the boys and their father for the other man, I said, I got pregnant, and I said I couldn't have that child because um, of all the guilt and shame that I already carried. 
she just didn't say anything. She just sat there and prayed. And I thought, okay, Lord, how would she know? How could nobody knew um, that there was one last thing? And uh, I realized that God knew and he wanted me pure, that he didn't want to let me go. And so I just looked at her and I said, Joyce, I said I had one more abortion. And I said it wasn't very long ago. I said it was with, with Jay. And um, I said, but the hardest part was I knew Jesus, and then I didn't turn to him. And I said, and what it made it harder was it was uh, Jay's only child. And we just sat and we prayed. And I looked up, and my greatest fear was that she was going to be gone and Jesus would be gone. And yet they were persistent. And they knew at that point that there was nothing else. And I knew at that point that I was free. out of her office that day and I no longer lived in a great world. I lived in a very black and white world. The sky was bluer, the grass was greener, the birds sang and it was as if I walked into a whole new world and I knew that day who I was in him and that he loved me in there was no more guilt and shame that it was gone. He was now carrying that for me and I was now capable of um, being the wife and the mother that he, and the person that he created me to be. I had shared my secrets and all that I had with Jay, and he knew everything about me too. And so there were no more lies, there were no more secrets, there was um, a new relationship. And um, two and a half years later, I married Jay. And it's we've been together for 17 years. I couldn't have a marriage of, in a relationship of 17 years if God wasn't in it. I wasn't humanly possible of accomplishing that on my own or being the mother that I am to my boys today. My greatest goal in life is one day to stand before him and for, and for him to look at me and say, well done, good and faithful servant for whom I am pleased. Hurry home because you have three precious children waiting on you. I am Lisa Luby Ryan, and I thank God every single day that I am second.
Isn't that powerful? <laughs> so I've, I've hit you pretty hard, and I've hit you for a long time, and so I, I just want to bring it to a close. The last story that I want to tell you is about a friend of mine. Remember, I was talking about how these two men came to me and, and said that they were struggling with pornography addiction, and, and, and one of my friends had actually struggled for like 35 years. As we were using Ministry of Healing to, to address the sin problem, we were all three of us getting healing. And so one Sabbath, my friend woke up, he got dressed, he had told his daughter the night before, he said, don't bring in the dogs because it's not, it's not too cold, it'll be all right, they can stay outside. And so my friend got ready for church and he got in his car, Uh-oh, as he went into the garage, he saw that she indeed had put the dogs in that night. And what they did is they had gotten sick, so they had diarrhea and vomiting all over the cement floor in the garage. But because he was ready for church, he, he thought to himself, I'll just deal with this when I come home. He went to church. He received his blessing. Remember, he was, he was starting to experiencing that victory in his life. As he came home, he pulled into the driveway, and, and he went into the house. He changed his clothes, and he thought, I'll just go and clean up that mess now. Can you imagine what that stuff was like as it set on cement for several hours? And so he, he started to clean it up. Sometimes the mess was actually between boxes, and he's had to move boxes and the the smell you can imagine in a closed-in garage was pretty fierce. But as he's cleaning it up, all of a sudden this thought came into his head and he said, you know what? I don't mind cleaning up after my daughter. And just then the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, you know, I don't mind cleaning up after you either. And this is what I want to end with. This is the part where we have to get to a point where we recognize that we are absolutely powerless the way that we're working, right? Right? trying to be good, trying to do the right thing, trying to move the right way. And, and, you know, just like a little baby, you know, raise your hand if you have children, right? Okay, so when your child, you know, messed their diaper and all of a sudden they got a hold of it, imagine the mess they made, isn't that true? But you still loved your child even though they were covered in their own waste, right? What was your first response? Your first response was to clean them, isn't that right? You know, you still love them, and you cleaned them up, and you got them all clean. And here's the bottom line. If I recognize myself as a child of the Father, and I recognize that we live in a polluted and a defiled world, and that it's always around us, and if I find myself in a polluted state, the more I try to clean myself up, the bigger mess I'm going to create. Isn't that true? If I recognize that God loves me supremely, period, that regardless of what I've been through, regardless of what has happened to me, regardless of what I've heaped even in my own life on myself and hurt those that are around me, he still wants me. His first desire is to catch me, to take me, and to clean me up, right? And so just like a parent, we know that God loves us better than we could possibly love our own children. Isn't that right? That his compassion is far greater than anything that we could experience for our children. And if you have enough love to where you'd be willing to clean up your kid, then doesn't it make sense rather than running from God that we can run to God? And if it's true that he doesn't mind cleaning up our mess, he's taken all of that not only into consideration, but he's already provided the way out. And here's an example um, that I use. Actually, would you mind coming here? Yeah. All right, and so she's Jesus, right? This is Jesus, and 2,000 years ago... He died for me, right? And everything that he accomplished is right here, right here. Use it with both hands because this is precious, Jesus, all right? So everything that, that Jesus died for me 2,000 years ago, it was accomplished on the cross, and it's right here. Isn't that right? Do you agree? I, I'm not sure you agree. Okay, thank you. Maybe you're just not awake. 
But anyway, what happened is he accomplished all of this for me 2,000 years ago on the cross. This has already been provided for me. Does Jesus have to die every time I sin? Exactly. It's already been accomplished. If I, if I sin tonight, he's already taken care of it. Not that that's a license to sin, but if I find myself in a fallen state, it's already been provided for. Isn't that right? So this is how I used to pray. I used to pray, Lord, Lord, please give me more strength. I need more grace. Lord, give me the strength that I need to overcome my sin. And I kept praying this prayer. And you know what? It was futile. I wasn't experiencing that. Do you see a problem here? What's my problem? Okay. Well, I say take it. I'm not taking what was provided. Here's the difference. As long as I... Don't go away, Jesus. I need you. As long as I continued to pray that God would give me something you know, above and beyond what I was capable of doing, as long as I continued to think that this was something that was um, elusive to me or that something that wasn't available to me or that I had to act right or be right or be good to receive it, then what was happening is it kept me locked in that life of constantly falling back into temptation and sinning again. But until the moment that I realized that this has already been provided, it's mine. I'm entitled to it, not because of what Mike Carducci has done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for me, knowing that I'm worthless and that I can't help myself. Therefore, I have the right to take this now. Now what I say instead is, I am taking what is rightfully mine because I am a child of the king. Because Jesus Christ has already died for me. His blood has already covered everything that I'm going to go through and everything that I've been through. I'm taking what's rightfully mine, not because I deserve it, but because I profess him as my savior. And because he's my savior, this is now mine and I'm entitled to it. And if you start to pray that way, you'll start to see the difference too. Instead of asking for something that you believe to be elusive for you, praying that hopefully God will give you something that you need to give you victory over your life, if you accept the fact that it's already been done and settled and provided, the only problem is, the only reason that you cannot have victory in your life is because you refuse to take what's already been given to you. And that changed my life. All right. And so uh, I just want to conclude, and I thank you for your patience. Listen, I gave you the best that I've got. This is stuff that I've been compiling for years. You can go to imsecond.com, and you can see incredible videos. And a lot of times I'll take my iPad to bed, and I'll just watch them until I fall asleep. But I hope that you were touched by, by some of these testimonies. And, and it's not just, like I said, exclusive to homosexuality, even though we struggle, and that's been my history. But I hope that what I've been able to do today is to help put you in touch with maybe some resources and some tools that could help you personally and individually uh, to repair what's been broken and taken. My goal for you, for our church, I believe, is that as we start to experience that healing, then what happens is you become a model to the community. Like they'll say, wow, look at that church. Fallbrook Church has something that I want. And if they can see that in you, then I believe what will happen is you'll keep your youth, you'll, you'll get the healing that you want, and then your church doors will start opening and people will want to see what you have and why it's working for you. So before we go into our q and I hope that you have your questions ready. Uh, let us bow our heads and pray. Father, as we conclude, I ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would impress upon each person's heart. Lord, for the specific issues that we struggle with and 
And I know, Lord, that as you have worked mightily in my life, I believe, Lord, that you want to do the same work for each one of us. And for those of us, Lord, that are sitting in the pews that are struggling with this, Lord, how often I prayed and asked, Lord, that you would send me somebody that I could relate to, somebody, Lord, that had been through the struggle that I had been through. And so, Lord, as I have made myself transparent, only for your benefit, I pray, Lord, that it has touched somebody's heart as well. That, Lord, that you are not mad at us. You're not mad at me, that you want to help me. And, Lord, it wasn't until I understood the work of the enemy and how he twisted and turned these deceptions, Lord, in such a way that I believe that you were angry and that I believe that you were like my father, dismissive and arbitrary. But, Lord, you are good and you are love. And I pray, Father, that you will begin that work with each individual here that's in this room. But, Lord, I'm praying that you will start with the leadership. I'm praying, Father, that from this moment on that they will see the benefit in being transparent to their members and recognizing and acknowledging to their old members and to their new members, to the youth of this church, Lord, that it's typical and it's understandable and it's normal, Lord, that we struggle. And that as human beings, Lord, that have a fallen and and polluted nature, Lord, that, that it makes sense that we're going to struggle. And so if we can acknowledge that, then, Lord, as we start to share, as Revelation 12, 11 says, they overcame the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Lord, not that we want to uh, 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 make a big deal about what we struggle with or go into the details, but, Lord, as we start to share with each other that we struggle in that and that you've given us the victory in certain areas, then, Lord, make a way of escape for somebody who may be trapped in that sin. And I'm praying, Father, for a covering over this church that, Lord, that you would take the roof off of Fallbrook Church and that, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be poured in, gushing in, Lord, and that we would experience that peace and the renewing power and the victory, Lord, the victory that you want to give to each one of us, the overcoming power, Lord, before you come to take us home. And my prayer, Lord, is not only would these members be there, but, Lord, but the people's hearts that they can touch from this day forward, that we would all be there and that your kingdom would be full. And this is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen.